Hi, I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. People had really shockingly awful lives then. They were hard, they were cold, they were hungry and gin provided an escape. One of the best ways to gain an insight into the personality of a stranger is to sit down and have a drink with them. There's the obvious fact that they'll open up a lot easier after a few glasses. But depending on what they pick, gin, wine, beer, how they order it, what they add to it, whether they're eager to drink what everyone else is drinking, whether they're the first to ask for shots, their choice of drink can tell you a lot about their personality. Today, we're focusing in on gin and its journey from mother's ruin to one of Britain's best-loved alcoholic drinks. It's interesting to consider what gin might have told you about a person's personality during the gin craze of the 1700s, not the wholesome sophistication you might now associate with the drink. Before gin's incredible resurgence, before there was a gin for every single palate imaginable, Hilary Whitney and her husband Ian Hart have begun their experimentation, searching for the perfect taste. And Hilary is my guest today. Chapter 1. The Origin Story Back in 2008, Ian was trading Bordeaux wine for fun. It was just a hobby back then, but it was along that path that he found his interest in gin. He wanted to make a product that had its origins in London, a trend that doesn't feel quite so unique now, but it was a novel idea back then. As serendipity would have it, another London gin maker was planning a grand unveiling at about the same time. Hilary and Ian's Sacred Spirits launched just before Sipsmith, and so the London gin scene was made. And to think, it all started from such humble beginnings. So Ian first started experimenting. He, in fact, distilled wine, first of all, taking out um, the water from rainy vintages to see if he could make the wine stronger. But obviously that's not a product. And then he started experimenting with gin and he bought some botanicals in the supermarket, just kind of started trying it out. The other thing I should say is that he's always enjoyed distilling. He's always, um, I don't mean he did distilling before that, but as a schoolboy, that's the kind of thing he might do on a, a rainy Saturday afternoon. He might have done a bit of distilling, not alcohol, but various things. And we used to go to our um, local pub, The Wrestlers, where the landlord very kindly on Sunday evenings used to let us try out the different recipes. Because obviously it's quite kind of him because the people weren't buying his drink when they were trying ours. And then there was one particular evening when everyone said, this is it. And it was actually our 23rd recipe. So it shows, you know, you you have to keep going. It doesn't happen instantly. And Martin said, if you bottle this, I'll have it in the bar. So we did. I was really worried about it because it's a whole new world, buying bottles, labels. But we did. And the wrestler still has it to this day. The first bottle we ever did Ian even designed the label, which was awful. And um, although we're, we're very fond of it, but um, he, yeah, he actually printed it out himself and everything. And then we, ta- you know, touted it around. Of course, in the between time, we had to get licenses and all the rest of it. And when you say touted it about, it's in some, it's in some pretty venerable institutions. The back of the, the bottle of the labeling now features a martini recipe. This is in some seriously high-end places isn't it it is so we were really lucky i don't think it would happen now but 
there were very few independent distilleries at the time. There was Sipsmith, there was us. That that was about it, really. I mean, there was Chase, who did their vodka. So when we first started, um, I don't know if we would do it now, but you don't know what you don't know, do you? So we went off to Duke's Hotel Bar. We met Alessandro Palazzi, and we were quite nervous. And you were talking earlier about the fever tree story. We went in, and we just handed him a bottle, and he said okay and he, he looked a bit dubious uh you know because we said we'd made it in our because we did make it in our house the first distillery was in our house and it was there until 2019 and he then he rang up a few days later and said he'd given it to some of his guests and they liked it and he bought a case and since then we've worked with alessandro he's become a really good friend we've worked with him on quite a few projects and the other place we went to was Jerry's in Old Compton Street. And I don't know if you know Jerry's. And anyone listening to this, if they don't know Jerry's, they must go there because it's the most amazing shop. They have absolutely everything. They're incredibly knowledgeable and it's very old school. It's very um, politically incorrect. They have all sorts of um, strange things on the walls, but it's just lovely. And they're the loveliest people. And we went there and they took it, which was amazing because a lot of bartenders go there from all over the world. You know, if you're a visiting bartender from New York or Singapore or wherever, you'll probably go to Jerry's to see what they've got. And then we went to Fortnum and Mason. And of course, those three places, which, and they took it too. And those three places, then you can say to other people, well, it's in, it's in Dukes, it's in Jerry's and it's in Fortnum and Mason. And people go, oh, okay, you know. But it was a tough sell at the beginning because people weren't so interested in gin. Which is extraordinary because now th- that has completely changed. I, I've of- often been fascinated with the boom and bust nature of, of gin. It's well known and well documented that, you know, say 150 to 200 years ago, there was a gin distillery on pretty much every street corner. London was full of them. It's impossible to think of gin without thinking about Hogarth, for example. And then overnight it kind of disappeared for a very long time and now with people like you with sip smith with artisan producers and i say i say artisan with a huge amount of respect because there is a huge amount of craft that goes into the production of gin but the scale of production we might be doing this from our homes but we're producing a significant amount of it well you roll the clock forward it's now sort of inconceivable that it that gin disappeared for so long because it is such a popular drink it is both old school and modern and relevant all at the same time when you when when you and Ian started this was it was it an attempt to sort of revive what was previously a booming industry I think there was some interest in that I don't know if we set out with that particularly in mind but yes I think there was some idea of that we were also, I think that's something sacreds continue to do. We're quite interested in reviving or refreshing spirits, you know, like um, vermouth or vermouth. I've never been quite sure how, you, how to say it. You know, people weren't that interested in, in vermouth for a long time. And now that's coming back. There's all sorts of independent vermouths being made. So, yes, to some extent. I always remember, though, when we first started Sacred, I went to an event And I saw someone I knew who was in his 20s. And I always had a little bottle of um, sacred on me and some plastic tasting cups. And I said, oh, do you want to try our gin? And he said, oh, all right. And he had a little bit. And then I said, what do you think? He said, well, it's it's nice. He said, it's it's much smoother. I thought it was going, it's really smooth. I thought it's going to take the back of my throat out. It's really nice, he said. But I don't know what you're going to do with it because no one drinks gin now. 
and you know so that was probably 2009 or something but these things come in circles don't they people wear skinny jeans now in my day when I was young it was they were called drain pipes you know and, and now people wear skinny jeans again beards beards were just for geography teachers in my day now you know <laughs> um and it's, it's quite interesting because I mean obviously Gin is a very versatile drink, and I think that's one of the main things that makes it very popular. For example, I'm not so keen on a G&T, but I love gin cocktails. That's where my interest is. But I say it goes in circles. So like in the 60s, people were drinking gin in the 40s, 30s and 40s. And then, of course, um, in the 60s, that's what your parents drank, so you didn't. So people went, uh, drank, people drank beer, the craft beer thing started. People drank wine, people went to wine bars. And there again, so it's, sort of, it's come round again. In the 60s and 70s, like, I think it was a bit of a, it's a bit of a counterculture. You know, it, it was considered, the martini was considered a bit staid, a bit formal. You had to go to a, a bar where it was very formal to drink it. But of course, all that's changed. We've got so many fantastic new bars and, and we still have the lovely great classic bars too. Chapter two, just the tonic. If you imagine the taste of gin in your mouth, there's a 99% chance you'll also have the sensation of the bubbles of tonic water on your tongue as well. The two are intertwined, almost synonymous with each other. Schweppes for a long time was the biggest player in the market and still shares a large portion of the pie. So when I watched someone make a sales pitch to a bar manager back in 2006 for another brand of tonic water, I thought he was mad. With Schweppes already cornering the market, why would anyone need another? How could it possibly be successful? Well, the product in question was Fever Tree, so obviously I was completely wrong. And it dawned on me that the advent of artisan producers crafting botanically perfect gins seems to have created an air of sophistication around the drink, a feeling that doesn't quite feel complete unless you have an equally sophisticated mixer to go with it. Fever Tree. One of the founders, I don't know if you know, but he used to work for Plymouth Gin. So obviously he was very aware of gin as a, as a product. But I remember when we first started Sacred, Craig, who is now their head of sales and was doing some sales for them, he said, oh, you know, do you fancy sort of doing some work together? You know, because when I'm doing tastings, you know, I could take Sacred, you know, and, and as, as the gin. So I met him for a drink in the French house in Soho. And Fever Tree had been going quite a while then because I remember saying to him, wow, you've really made an impact, haven't you? You're really like, Schweppes must be really worried. And he really laughed and said, you think that because you're in the industry and all your friends drink it, but no one drinks Fever Tree. No one is drinking Fever Tree, I promise you. People are still buying Schweppes and think, look how that's changed. I mean, it's it's amazing. So it's difficult sometimes when you're in, in the industry because you, you take a lot of things granted. You think everyone's drinking Sipsmith and actually... Well, they probably are now, but back in the day, they were probably still, you know, drinking their Gordons and thinking they were a bit sophisticated for drinking Bombay Sapphire, you know. But um, when you're actually in the middle of it, it's just because all your friends are doing the same thing. That's what you think they're doing. But yeah, the Fever Tree story is is quite amazing. And they're also a very nice brand. Yes. When I was drinking age, Bombay Sapphire was the, you know, that was the cool brand that you went to because it was in a nice, cool blue bottle, you know, and I, I, I would struggle to reference other brands other than you know the likes of of Plymouth and and Gordon's and perhaps Beef Eater because that you know had connotations to um the tower and all of that sort of stuff but now 
you know, it is very likely that if you put 10 different gins in front of me, I would have not had heard of most of them, you know, just because of the number of producers that are out there. That That's certainly what it, how it feels. It, it may be different, but I've tried lots of different gins that some of them, you know, are, are incredible. What I love is the artistry around it, which is, you know, we would recommend this citrus fruit and this mixer with this particular gin, but different ones, pro- presumably because of the botanicals and or the strength and or the way that it's made. It's a real art, isn't it? It is. And um, going back to how many gins there are, I mean, when when um, more sort of craft gins, for want of a better word, used to come on the market, we always used to buy one as a buy a bottle as a reference point to see what other people were doing. I mean, we've lost track of that a long time ago. I hear all the time of new gins. I don't know how they'll survive, but I mean, it's hard to find a county town that doesn't have its own gin now. Um, there's Manchester gin, Liverpool gin, you know, there's um, there's a Dulwich gin. Yeah, there's a distillery, there's a distillery all over all over the place. Um, can we talk about the restrictions that you work under in terms of the production? Are there rules that govern what gin is, particularly London gin? Does that have a certain specification that you have to adhere to when you make the product? Yeah, London dry gin can be made anywhere, made in Hong Kong, can be made in various St Edmunds, but it has to be predominantly juniper. And it has to be made from grain spirit. I've always thought that there is a certain soft power appeal of something being called London dry gin. As you know, it really cements, particularly the gin with the product and and London. And I just wanted to go back and reflect on on Hogarth for a second. I don't know whether this is true, but I want it to be true because it's a great story. I read that. The very famous Hogarth paintings uh, or, or illustrations of Gin Lane and Beer Street, where Beer Street is quite obviously a happy place to be, where the people that are hanging out seem quite sophisticated. On the other hand, Gin Lane is not a place where you would want to spend, or maybe you would, but not the place you would want to spend a huge amount of time because everyone is absolutely, you know, drunk off their feet and lying in the lying in the gutter. I read that that was a piece of work that was commissioned by a brewery in an attempt to position beer as being cool and gin as being evil. Is, have you heard the same thing? Is there any truth in that? Well, I've heard, yes, I've heard that story and I've heard that it was Fuller's. Um, and I think there probably is some truth in that. But having said that, I mean, Gin Lane was, a uh, talk about the gin craze, was pretty awful. I mean, people got really, really drunk. They did dreadful things the story about a woman whose daughter died and she sold her clothes. Families were ruined. It, it wasn't it wasn't great because people had really shockingly awful lives then. It, they were hard. They were cold. They were hungry. And gin provided an escape. Chapter three, a virtual world. As we heard from Helen McGinn in a recent episode of the podcast, although supermarket wine sales have done well out of the pandemic, the hospitality industry has lost around 90% of its business and total alcohol sales have plummeted. But it's not all doom and gloom. What I have loved seeing over the last year is that the online wine scene, which had so much potential, but we were so used to going to a shop to buy our wine, that has really changed in the last year. And it turns out, despite the difficulties, Sacred Spirits has enjoyed many unexpected benefits from lockdown too. So obviously it's been very tough having um, bars and restaurants close, 
and I'd be interested to see what happens. And I think it's great the way people have been very inventive. So in fact, some of the entrees, in fact, bars and restaurants, as you know, have been very nimble and they've done uh, takeaway versions. And we've sold quite a bit of gin. There's a couple of people doing takeaways that we've sold gin to, but basically the on-trade has been nothing. But yes, um, we've had really good online sales. We also ourselves have a shop on Highgate High Street. And because of lockdown, people have been at home. So, you know, instead of thinking like, um, I'll get a bottle on my way home from work, People are thinking, you know what, I'll have to have a break now. I'll stroll into the village and have a look at the shops and, you know, been in and bought stuff. So that's been great. And our off-trade, you know, wine shops, wine merchants, they've been doing quite well as well as people go and buy stuff. And also I think spirits have done well during lockdown because people have got more time. So people are getting into cocktails and experimenting and people are, if you can't go out, and in fact, Ian and I do this ourselves at the weekend, we make some cocktails and we take our time over it and we sit and enjoy them because we can't go out and do anything. So you've got to make it an occasion at home. And I think a lot of people are doing that. I know that you have a, a, a fairly detailed online presence in terms of social media. Have you found it interesting to see the way that your um, customers interact with the product? Because presumably you get sent or tagged in, you know, all manner of tweets and Instagram and Facebook posts that show your customers with your product what's that like when that happens oh it's lovely it's really nice and um we've got some really good relationships with some of our customers um there's people who've been buying from us online since we started and i you know we email each other and um very personal relationships and they buy them for presents for people who they kind of become like friends almost it's very nice it must be uh, i was you know when i Whenever I interview writers, I always say, you know, what, what's it like when you get nice reactions? And, and they, they describe it in, in exactly the same way. It's lovely to see the, the product, whatever it is, out there being enjoyed because you don't always get to see that. So I think, you know, social media has done a lot to bring us closer to customers or readers or viewers or, or whatever it might be. Just to say, we've had some real surprises as well. Like a couple of people have sent us pictures of sacred in places we didn't know it was um, in Cuba um and in zanzibar and we have no idea how it got there but they went to a, they've been to bars in those places and people have found it and, and sent us pictures oh that's fantastic i love it when a product gets out into the wild and it finds itself in places that you couldn't <laughs> possibly imagine presumably you don't have a, a direct distributive relationship to zanzibar that's quite no we funny. don't we don't I, I, I think that is probably somebody going to jerry's and looking for something different and taking it back with them in their suitcase that's fascinating. Um, we're easing, we hope, out of lockdown here in the UK. Hilary, you and I are recording this, um, this just before Easter. April and May seem to signal that we might be able to do certain things that we haven't been able to do for ages. In terms of plans for Sacred and the, the distribution, what, what does the future hold for you? I, I guess there's only a certain amount of product that you can produce given your size but are there plans for you know additions to the range or increasing um your production as we as we ease out of lockdown well we we certainly could produce a lot more than we do at the moment um so we are looking to increase our sales we have something up our sleeves but i can't say anything about it at the moment but one thing we are doing is um distillery additions and again i can't i can't not allow to say anything about that either but um, we have got plans. And I think also there are some things from lockdown that will continue, like the online events. 
they're great because people who can't come to London or we can't get to, they can still do them. And um, I was listening to somebody talking about theatre and they're saying they'll still they'll still be doing a lot of streamed live theatre because people who can't get down to London or maybe they have um, disability issues, you know, people can still join in now. It's become much more inclusive. One of my guests recently was the head of the South Bank Centre, um, Elaine Bedell, and she said something very, very similar. She said it's caused them to maybe rethink their programming um, as we come back. Yes, they've lost all of their in-person footfall, but they now have people online from all over the world watching you know, performances. The same with restaurant food boxes and, and home delivery. I, I think that a significant amount of that will continue. Obviously, the high-end experience would be to go to the restaurant in person but if you're able to you know taste food from a restaurant that's on the other side of the country for you because of home delivery i think that will probably stay and and you know what you're saying about keeping the zoom tastings going it allows you to presumably broaden the appeal and knowledge base and, and awareness of of the product because when you're online you could be anyone in the world couldn't you absolutely and i think um you don't have to get a babysitter. You don't, you know, think about getting a taxi back or any of those things. That's it's, you know, it's all looked after for you. So I think I think those things will continue, and I think it's great actually. And we would never have thought of it if it wasn't for lockdown. I think people wouldn't think it would work. Fantastic. Well, I would encourage anybody listening who hasn't tried um, any of the product to to do so. In particular, the pack I ordered for home delivery was the Vespa Trio. Um, and I don't, I don't know how you pronounce whether it's um, vermouth or the, or whatever, but it was yes. absolutely delicious. <laughs> so I would, I would encourage everybody to do that. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Um, so we wish you well with the product range. I failed to get an exclusive out of you, but we will all um, keep our ears pure <laughs> for news coming down the line. But it's been a pleasure, Hilary Whitney. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Mark. Conclusion. A massive thank you then to Hilary Whitney for joining me on the podcast and to recap, what have we learnt? A simple hobby led to the creation of one of London's best-loved gin brands. Writing may just be a hobby for you right now, but you're far closer to professional than you realise. Overnight successes have usually been working hard for years. It took 23 different versions of the product to finally get someone interested in Ian and Hillary's gin. It's very rare you'll hit the nail on the head the first time round. As we often say, writing isn't the hard bit. It's going back and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting that truly tests your mettle. As Hillary said herself... When you start, you don't know what you don't know, but in their case, it worked to their advantage. Don't stress about the outcome too much. Don't overthink your next steps. Just take the plunge. Fever Tree burst onto what seemed to be an already crowded market and flourished. There's no need to reinvent the wheel or to shy away from tackling a subject or story that's been told before. Just make sure you put the perfect twist on it. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Let us know what lesson you've taken away from this week's episode. And if you'd like to share any suggestions or requests for future guests or discussions, we'd love to hear from you. You can either give us a like or leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at Behind the Spine. We'll be back next week with another new episode. Until then, goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. 
This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.